Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, Abby, good morning to you. I didn't notice you there. I just happened to catch you on the way up, and I thought, that girl looks like Abby Waldron. And then at a second glance, I thought, well, it is her. Uh, that was personal. I apologize. I'm glad to see all y'all this morning. But uh, I, uh, I want to tell you, this morning is a great morning. And it is great because the Lord made this day, and he wants to speak to his people in profound ways uh, to transform us into his beloved image. And for that, we are grateful as his people. He does not sit in silence. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 20, starting with verse 27, as we look at the Savior that silences the Sadducees. That's a mouthful. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. So this morning, as a way of reminder, we are in the third week of a mini-series called Lord of the Flesh that comes out of Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1, and goes to Luke chapter 21, verse 4. Jesus, this passage is teaching us big picture, has authority that has been granted to him by God the Father, and he is at the temple teaching in such a way that that authority would be recognized and seen clearly. The problem is the religious leaders and different folks at that time are asking him questions and trying to get him to respond in such a way that would undermine that authority. The context is important. It is the last week of Jesus' life as he comes to the temple two days actually before he is crucified. And his teaching and responses to this, these questions uh, really screams this. It says, this is my nation and these are my people. And I have authority to say that because of who I am. In Chad's sermon a couple weeks ago, the first of this four miniseries, Luke 21 through 18, we find Jesus showing how all of the Old Testament prophecies about him being the Messiah are fulfilled in him. The chief priests, the scribes, with their, along with the elders, question him, who do you think you are to stand up in the temple and declare that you are the Messiah? On what authority are you speaking? Jesus answers them with a question, as he does 306 times in the New Testament or in the Gospels. He tells them a gospel parable, and in doing so, turns their pointing and blaming fingers at him. He turns them back at, at them and says, you are the ones who've rejected the Lord of the flesh. They question his authority, and they lost Last week, Monty did an incredible job on in the Sermon of God and Government, Luke 20, 19 through 26. After they realized that Jesus accused them, uh, uh, they tried to lay hands on him, the text tells us. Not for a massage, not for a back rub, but to murder him. But they were afraid of what the people would do. So here's what they did. They sent spies who pretended to like him in order to catch him saying something heretical or to, to say something political against Rome so that he would be arrested. It, it was all a sham. It was all a political trick in some ways to get him in trouble. 
The text tells us he perceived their sneakiness and fakeness. Sneakiness and fakeness, my words, not his. But you get the picture. Oh, my. When I, when I see these situations, what I think is, oh, my. Jesus must have been so afraid. <laughs> what will I do now? How will I respond? They gave him their tough question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Again, he crushes them with his answer. So much so, the text tells us, it completely shut their mouths. However, this, this sort of session, if you would, of put Jesus on the hot seat, Q&A time with Jesus is not over. Here come the Sadducees with this third, let's get Jesus. Let's get him now. Let's stir up a controversy and the controversy here is an internal dispute between two different Jewish kind of folks, two different sects, about the resurrection. This confrontation uh, tells us that every major group has attempted to challenge Jesus and has failed. And we'll see this morning that they will fail again. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the nationalists, and now the Sadducees have all been unable to embarrass him. So let's read our text this morning. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and he died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. So hypothetical question here. In the resurrection, therefore, here's the question, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus says to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. <clears throat> but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush or the burning bush in Exodus 3, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. I love that. They no longer dared to ask him any questions? So this week, as I was studying this passage, and I happened to read the word resurrection, and that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, it took my mind to do a little research, a quick Google search, that really revealed a, a vast amount of historical information about how humans are and always have been fascinated with life after death or the afterlife, or living forever. You look up the ancient Egyptians. There's probably the most famous for this fascination of life after death. They spend 70 days mummifying 
They're the people who die so that they can be presented then after that in front of Osiris. She is the god of fertility and vegetation. You can actually look up a picture of her. She has green skin. She's eaten so much vegetation. They buried them with literature so they can read and instructions to navigate the next life. Or a pharaoh who died over 5,000 years ago, and they buried him with a sailboat that he, so he could sail into the next life. American Indians put dead ponies so they could have something to ride in the next life. The Greeks put coins in the mouth to pay their fare to the next life. In Greenland, they would bury dead children with their dogs. So the child dies and they kill the dog and they bury them together so the dog could help him find his way. Whether then or now, humans just instinctively, God has put eternity in their hearts, the scriptures tell us, instinctively know there's an afterlife. Now here's the deal. The Jewish people, and context is going to be so important this morning for us to understand what's going on in this text. So the Jewish people, they also, they were no different. They believed in the afterlife. Eternal life was written about in their, the, the Talmud, which is their book really of Jewish cultural life. Or in places like Psalm 16, 9 through 10, where it says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Psalms 49, 15, if you want to mark these down, or Psalms 139, and specifically in Daniel 12, 2. So the Jews believe both their traditions from the Talmud and the scriptures when it comes to life after you die. <clears throat> but as we'll see this morning, there were some, a very small amount, who did not believe in the afterlife. They argued strong that there was no resurrection in spite of 98 99% of the rest of the Jews believing in afterlife. These people, our text tells us, are called the Sadducees. And every Bible, Bible teacher throughout my life as a Christian has used this phrase when it comes to the Sadducees. And that is, they don't believe in the resurrection and that is why they are sad, you see. So I had to do it this morning. It helps you to remember who they are. Acts 23, 6 through 10 gives us a few more details about them. Just listen as I read this interaction. <clears throat> now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, there they are, and the other part Pharisees, two different kind of Jewish religious groups, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor any angels, nor any spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. So now they're, they're arguing, and it says, we find nothing wrong in this man, Paul. So the Pharisees go, Paul, he's okay. He believes like us. 
What if the spirit or angel spoke to him? And then the dissension became violent. Look, they went to blows. <laughs> they were like, gloves off, two hockey teams over this issue of the resurrection. So that makes us ask the question, who are these Sadducees? Verse 27 in our text tells us, there came, they came to Jesus, some Sadducees. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those that deny there is a resurrection. This is the only time Luke mentions Sadducees. I think uh, Mark had one time as well. But they are sprinkled more in Matthew because that was a book written to the Jews and also in the book of Acts as we just read. And as we read Acts 23, verse 8 gives us their sort of three big doctrinal stakes of what the Sadducees believe. One, as I said, did you notice this? No resurrection. Two, no angels. And three, no spirit. They were very small in number compared to the other religious leaders or to the Pharisees, but they held an incredible amount of cultural influence and power. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that they were a part of the upper echelon or the elite socially and elite economically of Jewish society. Most of the, Pharisees, most of the Sadducees, excuse me, were chief priests, high priests, and most of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin were the 70 elders of Israel who, who sort of were their counsel, if you would. Most of them were Sadducees. Verse 27 tells us that they came to Jesus. So we know from Matthew 22, which is the, the other account of this with a few more details. We know that they came to Jesus on Wednesday, as I said, two days before the crucifixion, and they are livid. These Sadducees are livid with Jesus because one chapter back in chapter 19, Jesus flipped the tables and Jesus ruined their corrupted money scheme in the temple because they were the ones that were in charge of temple operations. So Jesus has just come in and exposed them and took away their business, their corrupt business. Josephus also tells us that politically they were in bed with Rome in order to keep the money and power flowing. As long as they got along with Rome and gave Rome big tips and paid more than maybe they should, Rome would leave them along and they could just keep doing their thing. He also tells us that the people of Jerusalem hated them because of the exploitation they endured every time they came to the temple. Every time the people of Israel came to the temple, they would have to pay these corrupt leaders. Religiously, Josephus again tells us the Sadducees were more savage than any other group of the Jews when it came to dealing with the people of Israel. They were narrow and strict, biblically speaking. Here's why. Because they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. That's it. If it was outside of that and the other parts of the Old Testament, they dismissed it as not being authoritative. Matter of fact, they looked at the rest of the Bible as just sort of opinion or commentary on the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. 
They concluded because of how they interpreted the first five books of the Bible that the resurrection, resurrection was not spoken of. It didn't exist. So they came to this conclusion. There's no afterlife. The soul and body both perish at death. Humans become worm food. There's no reward or punishment after death. So they lived as if this life was all that mattered. That's why they could do what they did in Luke 19 and just exhort money out of people because it didn't matter. All that mattered was here and now. It does sound like the culture we live in, does it not? There's nothing new under the sun. So their life motto could be described as let us eat, drink, spin, defraud, steal, stay in power, abuse, etc., etc. For tomorrow, we die and it's over. I've heard people say that churches focus too much on doctrine or theology. You know, it's not important. Can we all just get along? I want to get along, but I will tell you that doctrine and theology is very important. What you believe does affect how you live. We'll see here this morning that what you believe about God and about others and about yourself absolutely matters in this life and the life to come. Also, if we believe what the Bible says about the sinfulness of man in its totality, then it should not shock us. I know it does. It shocks me. But I'm saying it should not. If we get a grasp of what the scriptures teach about the sinfulness of man, it should not shock us that men who knew the first five books of the Bible inside and out, like the back of their hand, could somehow come to this conclusion about the resurrection or them not being a resurrection and then justify how they live. Completely normal and good and right. That's the Sadducees. As you can see from Acts 23 passage I read, the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, they not only debated these issues sharply, uh, they not only, they've been at each other for years, but look, they, they, they were willing to fight physically over it. So now the Sadducees, these people, they come to Jesus with this goal in mind to undermine his authority and therefore his following because Jesus now has become a real threat to their way of life. Caiaphas, who was the high priest and also a Sadducee, tells us in John chapter 11, this man, and I'm summarizing, Jesus is a problem. If he keeps doing these miracles, everyone will believe him, and Rome, the Romans, will take away our place of power. So in John eleven fifty three, he says, so from that day on, or it says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So, that's the Sadducees. That setup was a little longer than normal, but it's important for us to understand who they were, why they came, and now the question, verses 28 through 33. 
So in order to discredit him, to shame Jesus in front of his followers, to make him look stupid, to make him look foolish, they bring him in their mind this ultimate question. This is a question up until this point. Scholars say that no one could answer. So th think about it. They would walk in. They don't believe in the resurrection. And they're trying to make their point to get followers to come on board of their ideology. And at the end of the day, scholars say they would ask this question. And everyone would be stumped. No one would know the answer. So they bring their ultimate question to Jesus. It's a hypothetical question that was for sure to make Jesus look like a fool, like it had made everybody else look. So the Sadducees say, Moses told us if a man's brother dies and he has a wife, follow this, and he has no children, the living brother must marry his dead brother. So notice they appeal to Moses. Moses is their main man. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And then the wife, they have no children of the wife. So the living brother must marry his dead brother's wife and have children with her. So when I, when I read those kind of things in Scripture, part of me laughs because I think they are explaining the Bible to the one who wrote the Bible, right? So I'm just like, you know, Jesus is like as cool as the other side of the pillow. Like, yeah, I know that. I wrote that. So he says there's seven brothers total. The first brother took a wife, but this brother died. So the second brother takes the widow or the wife whose first husband had died, and he married her, but he died also. So the third took her, and he died. And the fourth took her, and he died. And the fifth, and he died. And the sixth, and he died. And the seventh. You know, seven is a biblical number. Maybe that's why they stopped there in their hypothetical question. And he died. At this point, I would have interrupted and said, Whoa, is her nickname Black Widow? And I don't know about you, but if I'm brother number four, when number three went down, I'm gone. <laughs> I, I, I'm moving to Europe or somewhere, right? Nowhere to be found. Then it says, after seven, number seven dies, she also died. And thank God, a lot of lives were saved, you know what I mean? <laughs> hey, it's amazing. When you read it and think, Scary. So here's the question. The ultimate question. The question that no one can answer. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? <laughs> I don't know. You know, back in uh, high school, we used this phrase, they tripping. You ever use that phrase? They tripping. That's what I thought when I rested, man. They tripping. They tripping because they don't even believe in the resurrection. And they're using the resurrection and they're hypothetical to get Jesus. But they do notice, bring up their man Moses. They love them some Moses. They love Moses more than they love God. So here's what they do. Our man Moses 
the guy who wrote the real Bible, the only authoritative Bible, and they go back to Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 8, that speaks about what is called, I believe it's pronounced, levirate marriage. Is that right, Monty? Is that close enough? Thank you. <laughs> I meant to ask you this morning. It's what it's called, levirate marriage. And here's what it says in Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So they refer to that. They're very familiar with that text. Jesus just takes them right back to it. So the context of this command is that Israel, uh, the command in Deuteronomy 25, the levirate marriage, is that Israel is about to enter the promised land, and each family would get a portion of that land. So it's a way to protect and preserve each family's portion of the land by continuing the name and lineage. Leverat marriage actually means brother marriage. Now, if you have any imagination ability, you can see after they ask these questions and silence sort of hits as Jesus looks at them, I can just see them with pursed lips and a smirk on their face, right? Grin on their faces. <laughs> we got him. So Jesus gives us the answer. Verses 34 through 38. In Matthew's account, again, where there's a few more details, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus flat out tells them, you're wrong because you do not know your Bible <laughs> and you do not know the power of the living God. So he shoots straight with them. And this causes you, because you don't know your Bible and you don't understand who I am, this causes you to go astray, and it causes you to lead others astray with your stupid arguments. I think there's a great takeaway for us this morning. When we do not know the Scriptures, and we do not know how to apply them accurately to our lives, we go astray, and we lead others astray. These folks, and we have the same danger, can be full of spiritual knowledge and their hearts far from God and spiritually blind. It is a danger for us all, but it is evident and clear to us in this text this morning, this is where they are. Now in this answer Jesus gives them, he's going to touch on two things. One is marriage and one is Moses. In marriage, 34 through 36, Jesus says, the sons of this age, or the people living in this world, this age is, talks about us living in this world, they marry, we know that, and are what? Given in marriage. But those worthy enough, he says, to make it to that age, or the afterlife, or eternity, or the next life, by the resurrection of the dead, that's how you get there. Dead people don't go to eternity. 
do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. That's Jesus is summarizing what Jesus said. He's making the point in eternity. This is going to be hard for some of you this morning, but we need to know the scriptures and know how they apply to our lives. In eternity, there is no marriage except the bridegroom, Jesus, has finally has his bride by his side, his people. Verse 36, in eternity, no one dies, so no one needs to be replaced. There's no procreation. So Jesus makes the point, we're like angels, because angels, neither do they die or reproduce. Step back to verse 35. He says, those who are considered worthy. That's, scholars say that's a straight shot at the Sadducees, and they know it. Those who are considered worthy, meaning you're not worthy. You're not worthy because you don't believe in the resurrection. How is one worthy? We need to be reminded this morning. It is faith in Christ. It has always been faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, it was faith in the coming Messiah. In the New Testament, and today it is faith in the Messiah who has come. Monty described it beautifully in our communion this morning. So Jesus makes it clear that universalism is not true. Everyone will not go to be with God in heaven. All will be resurrected. All will live forever in eternal life or eternal death. Jesus makes this point here. Marriage does not define any part of the life to come. Now look, I just need to step back a minute because growing up, when my dad died, who I very questionable was he a believer, my mom, who I think really was not a believer, she said, I just can't wait to see him one day. I know Jack's going to be waiting on me up there. Well, no, not really. It didn't go over well when I mentioned that that probably is not the case. <laughs> And it was probably bad timing on my part. <laughs> Folks, the life to come is not like the knife here. We are going to be so focused on the majesty and glory and reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. It ain't going to be like, hey, can we stop a minute? Because I, I need to say hi to my girl here. My wife just got... It, it's going to be so uh, nirvana times 20 zillion because of the glory of the Lord Jesus and us being in his presence that our wives and family become, they, they not, don't even come to our mind. There's no yearning. <laughs> There's no missing. We're satisfied completely. I know that's hard to imagine for you because it's hard to imagine for me. We're not going to be going, gosh, I need to go play some golf today on cloud nine. There's going to be no turkey killing. I'm as sad as anybody. I'm not going to want to kill turkeys. And there's not a day that I live here on this earth that I don't think about how to kill gobblers.
Life with God in eternity will be totally different from our present existence. Can we say amen? Even though the Sadducees mocked the resurrection, they did assume wrongly if there was a next life, it would be the same as this life. What we, what we believe matters, folks. And since that is not the case, their question about the spouses and who would be married to who is irrelevant. The question that was supposed to show the ridiculousness of the resurrection now becomes a moot point. Here's how Dr. Daryl Bach wrapped this up. He says, Jesus has flipped the tables once again on the Sadducees, but this time it's flipped theological tables. In Luke 19, he flipped real material tables, and now he flipped these theological tables. So marriage. Secondly, Jesus answered the question by pointing to Moses. In verse 37, Jesus drops the hammer. Jesus comes straight at their expertise, if you would. He goes straight at the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. He goes straight to the source that they trust the most. And he makes them look foolish using their own beliefs. He does so, he goes to Exodus 3 in the burning bush account. To make sure they know the resurrection is a biblical teaching that comes from all of Scripture, including the first five books of the Bible in which they put their trust wholly. He uses the text about the resurrection from the Pentateuch because he knew it would be more persuasive than anything, and he uses the example of Moses that they brought up, showing them that Moses too, their guy, was a believer in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus makes this statement in verse 37. The dead are raised, and Moses showed that they are raised in Exodus 3. I'm summarizing here. In that burning bush event, everybody, you remember that? Somewhere, somehow, we remember that. Where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In this bush section, if you would, in this burning bush text, these words were spoken to Moses by God from the burning bush, and in doing so, God identifies himself to Moses in Israel as who? I am. I am. I am the eternal God. And here's what the I am means. I have always existed. I exist now, and I will always exist. I am so glorious and so eternal, the only way to describe me is I am. The eternal God. But then, but then he called himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Speaking of these patriarchs, speaking of the Jewish leaders as, as if they're not dead, but those who are alive with him. If God spoke of dead men as if they were alive, then this implies that the resurrection is true. That's what Jesus is showing them. They indeed would rise from the dead. And here's, 
Here's the key part that we can't see in the English text. When these Sadducees heard it, they heard the, heard the verb tenses that Jesus was using. And the verb tenses went like this. He did not say, I am. No, he said, I am and they are, not I was and they were. Jesus says, I am and they are, not I was and they were. Jesus makes this point, death does not end one's existence. Folks, this is devastating to the Sadducees. They gave Jesus their best shot. They gave him their hardest question that had never been answered and understood. And Jesus, in order to silence Jesus, and Jesus does just the opposite, he silences them. And then lastly, we got the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees believe in the resurrection, and they believe in angels, and they believe in the Spirit. They're more theologically attuned, if you would, and they hated the Sadducees, and they were always arguing, as I said. So the Pharisees are watching this interaction between the Sadducees and Jesus, and they see Jesus, and they're hoping. Don't get me wrong. They're, look, it's, it's humans are complex here. They're pulling for the Sadducees to win this game, Right? But when they watch it, they see Jesus completely annihilate them. You get it? You know what they say? For once, they're like, pretty good, Jesus. <laughs> good job, man. We've been trying to answer that question for a long time. <laughs> so much so, they no longer dare to ask him any question. You say, Jeff, man, that's a lot of stuff and a lot of information. What was Luke's intent to, to write that? What was God's intent through Luke, Dr. Luke, to write that and put it in our scriptures? Well, what are we to take away from that? Believe in the resurrection? Well, we, I got that, right? Here's what I think it is. It's just majesty. It's for us to see Jesus clearly. Just because here's the reality. We don't stop sinning and become like Christ by saying, I've got to stop sinning. We stop sinning and become more like Christ when we see Jesus clearly. When, when we are living here with a heavenly eternal mentality that all other things matter little <laughs> compared to the Lord Jesus himself. The intent, I believe, makes us ask three questions. Did you see the incredible majesty of Jesus in this text? It's his third Q&A. And no one can stump him because he is incredibly wise. Number two, did you see his absolute devotion to Scripture rightly interpret, interpreted to answer anything life or others would throw at him? Because that's exactly how he wants us to live. And if you don't see him doing that clearly, there's doubtful that you'll see us doing that clearly. And then thirdly, did you see Jesus' full affirmation of the promise of the resurrection to those who have trusted him? My gosh, folks, if you don't know that you will not 
die, but you will rise and live forever. This world is way too heavy to live in. What a great affirmation of his grace and our dignity that we will not rot as worm food if we know Christ. Take a minute this morning and in some ways say, maybe it's a prayer. Lord, help me see you clearly. And help me see the implications of the clarity of who you are in the life that you've called me to live. Take a minute to ask the question, so what, this morning? Lord Jesus, early this morning, you know that I rose and I saw someone on social media that is supposed to love you and follow you and supposedly knows you. And they had a picture of someone that they said they had put on their wall beside their desk for 27 years. It was a man, just a man just a man like us that he has been he has been this man that he had a picture of has been his inspiration for 27 years Lord my heart was saddened by that as Christ's followers become so real to us and so clear to us that we put no man as an inspiration to us. Oh, we can get encouragement from each other. We're supposed to do that. But to be in some ways, Lord, to elevate people above you, let us be a people who, who put your word and who you are. It's what gives our lives meaning and purpose desire to change and to run to you in sweet and powerful ways that we may make much of you Lord thank you that our text clearly shows us that you're not like us we can trust you you have complete authority you're in control we're so grateful so grateful for that we love you. And everyone said...